everyone. I'm Grace Beatty, and welcome to Wicked Women, the podcast. Step back in time with me as we learn about some of the most infamous and maligned women in history. Speaking with leading experts, I will discuss these women's backstories and the circumstances that gave them the title of Wicked. In this season of Wicked Women, I will be focusing on some well-known and some lesser-known women in history who have acquired an unsavory reputation. In the end, this podcast does not look to excuse or dispute the wrongs committed by some of these women, but it is also not looking to completely villainize them. Instead, I hope this can be a conversation starter on the complicated legacies prescribed to women in history. In today's episode, I will be analyzing the life and legacy of Margaret Beaufort, the mother of King Henry VII. Discussing Margaret's life and legacy with me today will be Dr. Nicola Tallis, historian and author of the widely popular biography on Margaret, Uncrowned Queen, and Deb Hunter, creator of the podcast, magazine, and social media sites, All Things Tudor. Continue listening to learn more about this dynamic woman from history. The Tudors are one of England's most infamous royal dynasties. Henry VII, the founder and distrustful cautious monarch. Henry VIII, the six times married monarch who created a new religious order in England. Edward VI, the zealous Protestant boy king. Mary I, the first queen regnant in England, who went down in history for burning Protestants at the stake. Check out her episode to learn more. Elizabeth I, the virgin queen who oversaw one of the most influential periods in English history. However, while Henry VII is known as the founder of the Tudor dynasty, the true mother of the Tudors was a woman named Margaret Beaufort, a woman who birthed a future king at only 13 and lived her life against the backdrop of the Wars of the Roses. Margaret has been remembered to history in two very contrasting ways. In one, she is seen as an overzealous, fanatical woman who resorts to violence and manipulation to see her son ascend the throne. In the other, she's a deeply pious woman who patronized the arts and education, but with little excitement to warrant much attention. For many years, Margaret was almost forgotten by history, overshadowed by her larger-than-life descendants. In recent years, she has made a comeback in popular media, but this rediscovery of the true founder of the Tudor dynasty saw the resurfacing of some of the worst rumors about her life. Many interpretations choose to focus on her ruthless ambition, and the work of Philippa Gregory revived a theory that she was to blame for the death of Edward IV's sons, now known to history as the Princes in the Tower. Margaret's true story is far more interesting and compelling than any fiction. Margaret was born sometime around May 1443. She was the only legitimate child born to her parents, John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, and Margaret Beecham. Her father was the grandson of John of Gaunt, the third son of King Edward III and his mistress, Catherine Swinford. While John and Catherine's children were born illegitimate, John legitimized them when he married Catherine Swinford in 1396. Her father died a year after Margaret's birth, and while she could not inherit her father's title as his only legitimate child, 
she was now a wealthy heiress. It appears from records that Margaret's early years were fairly happy and defined by strong family bonds, something that would become a staple of her entire life. In the early part of 1450, Margaret was married to John de la Pole. Both would have been around six years old, and given their young age, the marriage was not expected to be consummated until they were older. However, for reasons that are not entirely clear, by 1453, King Henry VI decided to annul the marriage between the two children. Margaret never recognized her marriage to John de la Pole, and in her will, she referred to the marriage to her second husband, Edmund Tudor, as her first. In 1455, Henry VI decided to broker a marriage between the 12-year-old Margaret and his 25-year-old half-brother, Edmund Tudor. Edmund and Henry shared the same mother, Catherine of Valois. After the death of Henry VI's father, Henry V, Catherine of Valois had begun an affair with a squire named Owen Tudor, which resulted in the birth of Edmund and his younger brother Jasper. The combination of Margaret and Edmund's royal lineage would make them a powerful pair at the English court, and Edmund would acquire all of Margaret's lands and wealth upon their marriage. While a marriage at Margaret's age was not uncommon in the medieval era, the church had declared that 12 was an appropriate age for a girl to fulfill her marital duties. It was common to have couples wait to consummate their marriage until the bride reached around 14, if not older. However, the eager Edmund Tudor did not wish to wait, and within months of their marriage, the adolescent Margaret was pregnant. In the midst of her pregnancy, on the 1st of November, 1456, Edmund Tudor contracted the plague and died. Now in Wales and heavily pregnant, Margaret sought the assistance of her husband's brother, Jasper Tudor. It was at his castle in Pembroke where Margaret went into labor. Due to her age, Margaret's underdeveloped body struggled against intense labor. Later, Bishop John Fisher, a close confidant of Margaret's, wrote that the doctors did not believe Margaret or her unborn child would survive. But survive they did, and on January 28, 1457, Margaret's son, Henry, was born. The love for her son would grow into a fierce loyalty and ambition that would characterize her life. While Margaret survived, her body appears to never have fully recovered, for despite two more marriages, she never had any more children. Some later renditions of Margaret have speculated that rather than being unable to bear children, she ensured she never would again by refusing to consummate her later marriages. While this fact can never be proven, the psychological scars of such a difficult pregnancy are evident in her later years. When her granddaughter Margaret was betrothed to the King of Scotland, Margaret urged her son Henry to hold off the wedding because she believed the adolescent Margaret was too young to take on the duties of a wife. Margaret has often been faulted for her overbearing, fanatical obsession and ambition for her son. In many cases, it has been portrayed as a love that drove Margaret to unspeakable evils. What is clear is that Margaret and Henry had a close relationship from the beginning, one that was defined by trust and mutual respect. As Deb Hunter points out, I think the first thing is she had a child when she was 12, and how that, that's so mind-boggling 
and she couldn't have any more children. So the one child she had, she was extremely devoted to. And I, I don't believe the, the White Queen, it's fiction, number one, but I don't think she thought she was on a mission from God. Um, but I think that was her child, and like any mother, she she wanted her child around her, or at least to know her child was being taken care of. As a teenage widow with a son, Margaret had to take her future and that of her child into her own hands. On January 3rd, 1458, almost a year after giving birth, Margaret married for a third time to a man named Sir Henry Stafford the second son of the Duke of Buckingham. The Duke of Buckingham and his family were staunch Lancastrian allies and were deeply entrenched in the court of Henry VI. The early years of Margaret and Henry Stafford's marriage happened against some of the bloodiest events of the Wars of the Roses, with both the York and Lancastrian forces gaining and losing ground in a constant merry-go-round of battles, court intrigue, and murder. If you want to know more about the specifics of the Wars of the Roses, listen to my Margaret of Anjou episode, or check out my website with links to additional information. By 1461, the Yorkist king, Edward IV, was on the throne, placing Margaret and her husband in a difficult situation, since both had supported the opposing side during the years of turmoil. Margaret's son Henry had his titles confiscated, but Henry Stafford was able to maintain a position at court by savvy court maneuvering. Henry was soon placed under the wardship of William Herbert, a common practice of the time, but one that must have been difficult for Margaret. After nine years of relative peace and comfort, the country was once again flung into battle when King Edward IV's closest advisor, in retaliation for the king marrying the unpopular Elizabeth Woodville, rose up in revolt alongside the king's brother, the Duke of Clarence. William Herbert was ordered by Edward IV to gather troops, and he chose to bring his ward, Henry Tudor, with him. Margaret must have been in a fit of anxiety over the danger her son was riding into, and she had every reason to be concerned. Greatly unprepared and outnumbered, the ensuing battle swung in Warwick's direction, and Edward IV was captured. Herbert was killed, in the battle, and Henry, much to Margaret's relief, was unharmed. With Edward IV in captivity, Margaret made an uncommonly rash decision by traveling with her husband to London to request an audience with the new king, the Duke of Clarence. Margaret wanted her son returned to her care and his titles restored. Unfortunately for Margaret, Edward IV was soon back in power and reconciled with Warwick and the Duke of Clarence and her blatant show of disloyalty put her son's future in jeopardy. Within months of reconciliation, Warwick and the Duke of Clarence were once again plotting against the king, but this time they planned to recruit an ally that would shift the tides of rebellion, the deposed Queen of England, Margaret of Anjou. Margaret of Anjou must have been shocked but enticed by the Earl of Warwick's offer. His daughter Anne Neville would marry Margaret's son, Prince Edward, after which, together, they would reclaim the throne for Henry VI and Margaret's son. One of her greatest adversaries may have become the person to win back the crown. While Margaret of Anjou agreed to the marriage between her son and Anne Neville, 
She insisted that the Earl of Warwick secure England before she, her son, and his new bride arrived on its shores. The Earl of Warwick did so, using the element of surprise and restoring Henry VI to the throne on October 3, 1470. As the nephew of Henry VI, Henry Tudor was now in a potentially powerful position. Margaret, alongside her son and Jasper Tudor, arrived at court to present themselves to the king. Margaret had always been ambitious for her son, and this moment of supposed triumph must have meant a great deal to her. However, as was the case with most things during the Wars of the Roses, the triumph was short-lived. On November 11, 1470, Henry Tudor bade his mother farewell as he went to join his uncle Jasper in Wales. Neither Margaret nor Henry would have known that they would not see each other again for 15 years. The well-laid plans of Warwick and Margaret of Anjou came crashing down around them in the early part of 1471. For more information on the disastrous invasion of Margaret's army, go and listen to my Margaret of Anjou episode. Soon, Warwick was dead, Margaret was captured, and Henry VI was found dead in his accommodations at the Tower of London. The Lancastrian cause was seemingly decimated. If Edward IV had been wary of Henry Tudor and Margaret Beaufort before, he now had even more reason to fear them. Henry Tudor was the only remaining Lancastrian claimant to the throne through Margaret's lineage, and this fact put Henry in grave danger. In a decision that must have devastated Margaret, Jasper Tudor and Henry sailed for France to seek refuge from Edward IV's wrath. Here's Nicola Tallis on Margaret's decision to send Henry to France. So I think, so that all comes about as a result of the, the Battle of Tewkesbury, really, or maybe I should just say the battles of 1471 that see Henry VI and the House of Lancaster annihilated. And um, Henry VI's heir, Prince Edward, is killed at the Battle of Tewkesbury, so, and, and shortly afterwards, Henry VI himself, of course, is murdered. And there are many reports of how ruthless Edward was at the Battle of Tewkesbury to the Lancastrians because he was just determined to, to wipe them all out. And sure enough, you know, with the death of Prince Edward as well, all of the key Lancastrian male figureheads were gone. And... It was little wonder, therefore, I think, that Margaret would have worried for Henry. And, of course, there there are some sources, and I think that this is probably quite true, that say that it was Margaret who told Henry to go for his own safety. So, I, and I can very much see that that would have been something that she would have done. Um, so that is very much how how that comes about. Now, why Margaret didn't go... Um, I think, again, that she perhaps didn't see herself as being in any great danger because her husband, well, actually, and also she couldn't immediately flee because her husband at that time, William Stafford, he had fought for Edward IV at the Battle of Barnet. So to all intents and purposes, they were seen to have been loyal to the House of York. Um but also, we know that Stafford was injured at the Battle of Barnet and um, that he died in October, so, you know, a few months after the Battle of Tewkesbury. So perhaps that was why Margaret couldn't 
immediately have thought of fleeing. She had her husband to consider. But as I say, there was probably also no real need for her. And I think she also probably conceded that she was best placed here in England to try and to try and sue for, for Henry's future, really, because what sort of life was there going to be for him living abroad as an exile? Well, you know, the future wasn't going to be great for him. And, you know, when when Henry Stafford does die, less than a year later, I don't think it's any coincidence that Margaret is married to <laughs> Thomas Stanley, who's an adherent of Edward IV. I think this is her way of saying, okay, well what can I do to support my son? This is it. This is this is how I'm gonna make sure that he possibly can return home in the future. Margaret's son was in exile and her husband was dead. She now faced the political turmoil alone. Ever the realist, Margaret knew that the only way to maintain her position and safety was to marry again. A mutually beneficial marriage was arranged between Margaret and Thomas Stanley the eldest son of the first Baron Stanley. Thomas Stanley acquired Margaret's wealth and status, while Margaret acquired a husband with close ties to Edward IV's court, allowing her access to petition for her son's safe return. They were married sometime in June of 1472, and the next 10 years were filled with political maneuverings and constant petitionings for her son's return. But in April of 1483, Margaret's world once again shifted with the unexpected death of Edward IV. Initially, it appeared that all would go according to plan, with Edward IV's young son taking the throne as Edward V. But rarely do things go according to plan, especially when a child is set to ascend the throne. What followed has become one of history's greatest mysteries, and Margaret has become inextricably linked with the chaotic events of 1483. Edward IV's brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, swiftly usurped the throne and took charge as King Richard III. Edward V's legitimacy was brought into question by Richard and his allies, and Edward V, alongside his brother, were housed in the Tower of London for their protection. Richard III and his wife, Anne Neville, were crowned in an extravagant ceremony at Westminster Abbey, which Margaret, as a member of the nobility, most certainly attended. We do not know what Margaret thought about the dramatic turn of events, but her son's return to England was once again in a precarious position. Richard III was intent on keeping Thomas Stanley close to him so Margaret would have been witness to many of the dramatic events of Richard III's reign, none more so than the mysterious disappearance of Edward IV's sons in the Tower. Known commonly in history as the Princes in the Tower, the young boys hadn't been seen since Richard III's coronation. Later chroniclers would place the blame at Richard III's door, claiming that he had murdered the boys to strengthen his own place on the throne. None of the early chroniclers mention Margaret in their narrative of the princes in the tower. The rumor of her involvement did not show up in texts until 110 years after her death. In the 17th century, two authors, William Cornwallis and Sir George Buck, claimed to have read in old manuscripts that a certain countess 
was involved in the boy's murder. This certain countess was purported to be none other than Margaret Beaufort herself. But as Nicola asserts, that doesn't come about until more than 100 years after Margaret's death. So it's, it's a long time afterwards. And I think that really is the most convincing evidence for the fact that I don't think she was involved in any way. Because I think that, you know, at a time when there are, there are several people writing about the events of 1483 who, you know, who were there or who knew people who were there, whatever the circumstances. And I think the fact that none of these people link Margaret in any way with the disappearance of the princes is probably quite compelling. Um, I think that had she been involved, there would have been some hint or indication or whisper of it in contemporary sources and there just isn't so I think that you know people I've heard people say that you know she would have had motive well yeah she would have had motive there are other people who would have had motives as well you know many people um and arguably you could say that she would have had opportunity not during Richard's reign I don't think so no, I just don't think that it stands up at all, really. And I think that it's, I think it's a real slur on her character and her reputation. And I think that that's a real shame because she was somebody who did so much good in so many other respects and that people are still benefiting from today. You know, people are still attending St. John's in Cambridge, they're still attending Christ in Cambridge, which both Margaret's foundations, people are still benefiting from her generosity to this day. And so I think, yeah, I think it's hugely unfair um, and not justified in any way. There were documents saying about this cunning countess who'd used sorcery to, uh, to remove the princes. And I just think... Yeah, come on, you know, she's not, come on, <laughs> I don't know, I don't think, yeah, I just don't think, I mean, it, who knows, maybe there were sources that said that this cunning countess had removed these princes, but I just don't think, I just don't think that it's very likely, and I think that maybe when we're seeking alternatives in the, um, in the modern day world for, well, okay, if they weren't murdered, or at least if they weren't murdered on Richard III's orders, who could possibly um, have done it? Who could have removed them? I think maybe Margaret presents quite an uh, an interesting alternative theory, maybe. Um, but yeah, I just don't think that it really stacks up if you if you look at the contemporary evidence, really. But as I say, yeah, a hundred years later, but even then it doesn't even, it's not something that gains currency at that time. So you're literally looking at like one or two people who cultivate this idea that Margaret may have been responsible. And then it's not something really that appears until more recent times where it's obviously been put forward in popular culture a bit more. These early claims have become legend. Margaret is portrayed as a woman willing to commit murder to ensure her son becomes king. Ironically, it appears that Margaret's ambition for her son to take the throne 
did not materialize until after the princes were murdered. By that point, she began to envision a world where her son was king. But for that to become a reality, Margaret needed the support of Edward IV's widow, Elizabeth Woodville. It is believed that Margaret crafted a plan in which her son Henry would marry Edward IV's eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York. With this marriage, the York and Lancastrian factions would be joined, and both claims strengthened. This was a daring move for all involved, and one that in later adaptations is often portrayed as a years-long plot on Margaret's part. But as Nicola points out, I think there's no doubt when you use the word intense, I think that could be said of Margaret's personality in many respects, uh, but not in this context. I think there's no evidence whatsoever that Margaret had this belief that Henry was destined to be King of England from the moment of his birth and was working towards that. And it's very clear, in fact, that that doesn't come until much later basically triggered as a response, I think, by the events of 1483 that, you know, first of all, Edward IV dies unexpectedly and then the whole saga with the princes in the tower. So I think that that is very much Margaret's response and Margaret pushing her son forward as a candidate for the throne come as a result of all of that. And until then, I think she was very much working to to keep Henry safe and to protect him, to be honest, um, you know, and to to try and forge some kind of future for him under the Yorkist regime. So I think that that was her foremost priority. I don't, I don't think that there's any way she would have wanted to place Henry in danger by you know, setting him up as a rival for Edward IV's, for Edward IV's throne. After an initially unsuccessful invasion of England, by early August, Henry had successfully landed and began making rapid progress through the English countryside. On August 22, 1485, Richard III and Henry Tudor's forces met at Bosworth Field for a gruesome final battle that would see Richard III killed and Henry hailed as the new king. This must have been a moment of crowning glory for Margaret, no pun intended, for her entire adult life had been dedicated to her son, his safety, and his advancement. Now, in spectacular fashion, her enemy was dead, and her son was not only safe, he was king. Margaret's actions during Richard III's reign could have led to her death for treason but she continued to communicate with her son and rally men to his cause. She was a woman who was determined to see her son succeed, even if it resulted in her own death. In her usual attention to detail, Margaret noted in her Book of Hours on August 22, 1485, this day, King Henry VII won the field where was slain King Richard III. Nicola discusses Margaret's unique and fortunate attention to detail and the maintenance of those records. Obviously, we don't have as much information as we'd like about women, well, in all periods of time, I guess, but this is particularly true in the 15th century. And I think that if we didn't have this wealth of information about her that, you know, is preserved in 
the College of St. John in Cambridge, which is Margaret's own foundation, then I think, I feel like she could have been passed over as, as really just a footnote, as nothing more than she was Henry VII's mother and that's it. I mean, I suspect that that's how they survived is that, yeah, they were, they were kept by her and then the executors of her will and yeah, at St. John's College now where, where they are today. Um, but yeah, there are, there are, there are, there are quite a few. So we have a, almost, almost a complete set of her accounts from the later years of her life, which is amazing because Obviously, that tells us about how she was spending her money, about how she was living her daily life. And they're really fascinating. It's almost like you're opening her diary for the day. Oh, yeah, okay, she ordered some red wine on this day. And oh, okay, yep, she somebody gave her a gift of a cake today. You know, it's really... <laughs> It's really cool to have that information for a woman in this period, I think. Those things are so ordinary, but they are so important in terms of building a picture of an individual's life, and that's what makes them special. Margaret's role in her son's life did not diminish once he became king. If anything, she had a direct hand in establishing the Tudor dynasty. Henry VII placed great trust in his mother's counsel and wisdom, he had been in exile from the English court for most of his life, but his mother had watched and participated in the constant maneuverings of the Wars of the Roses. She knew the people at court in intimate ways and could guide Henry in who to trust. Soon after Henry's coronation, Margaret was declared a femme sole, a title usually reserved for widows. This meant that she had complete and independent control of her estates property, and finances, apart from her husband, Thomas Stanley. This was an unprecedented move for a married woman, but one that exhibits Margaret's determination for control over her life. Margaret's status changed further with the new title of My Lady the King's Mother, and she began signing her correspondence with Margaret R. In 1498, the Spanish ambassador listed Margaret as the greatest influence in England. As Deb states, she started the title, My Lady the King's Mother, or the Queen's Mother, and I believe they still use that style. A lot of traditions she put in place are still followed by the monarchy. Many later historians and authors have emphasized this phase of Margaret's life as one of an overbearing mother controlling and manipulating her young son. In reality, the truth was far more nuanced. As Nicola points out. I think thinking of them as a pair is quite a good way to describe them, actually, because it's quite remarkable when you consider how little time they actually spent together. Um, but it's clear that when Henry VII became king, that whether it comes from the fact that he appreciated how much his mother had sacrificed for him, I suspect that's probably it. And, you know, also a realisation of her capabilities um and his his trust for her because as we know you know henry the seventh didn't trust a great deal of people uh, not surprisingly but his mother was the one person who he really could trust and um so yeah i think that there is this this sort of quite intensity in in the relationship between them and i think 
Um, when Henry becomes king, this is again where Margaret has and what I think is quite an unfair reputation as, you know, the fact that she was always there and she was always at Henry's court. And yes, that's true for the first 10 years. But again, I think it's because Henry wanted her there. And it also is understandable when you look at the context of what's come before. You know, she's spent most of her son's life apart from him. Of course she wants to be around him. Of course she wants to get to know him. Of course she wants to be a part of that whole, you know, that whole um, part of Henry's success in his life. So I think it's not really surprising. And yeah, I think they are very much a pair. And we can see that both in terms of their personal closeness and the fact that Margaret is always listed as as being there. Whenever there's something happening at court, she's there as well. Um, so they work, I think they work together and they also, you know, they're also tied by blood. Women were expected to be subservient to their male superiors. And when women were also defined by the relationships with the men that they shared in their lives. And, you know, when they break those boundaries and those expectations then it could have a a negative impact yeah the fact that basically many people would have expected her to take a back seat um when henry became king but actually we can't forget that and it's the same with elizabeth woodville you know with uh, and there's been so much research done on this about uh you know with elizabeth woodville where she wouldn't have been able to promote her family's interests without Edward IV's support. And it's exactly the same with Margaret. She wouldn't have been able to carve out this role for herself or to assert her authority or to do many of the things that she did if her son hadn't been okay with that. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think unfortunately, her, her gender has worked against her in that respect, in the same respect as it is it has for many of her contemporaries. This is, a, um, well, this is a, an example that I can think of. So Margaret has a palace at Woking and she absolutely loves it. She spends a lot of her time there. It's one of her favourites. And anyway, and then Henry VII um, decides that he would quite like Woking and so decides to basically force this land exchange on Margaret and she really doesn't want to hand over Woking to her favorite favorite palace um but and she does it with a very bad grace but she realizes that well she has to she doesn't she's not given a choice she might not want to but she has to so um because Henry has forced that on her so you know yeah she anything Henry is king at the end of the day yes Margaret can be there to advise him if he doesn't want to do something he's not going to do it regardless of what she says so yeah I think that that's a, a, a definitely an important point to consider when when looking at her Margaret lived as a queen in all but name the other common depiction of Margaret is of a fanatical pious woman robed in black in 1499 with Thomas Stanley's agreement Margaret took a vow of chastity and all but left the marriage. After this point, she lived primarily on her own. But Thomas Stanley continued to play a role in the Tudor court 
until his death in 1504. While religion played a major role in her daily life, she also enjoyed lavish dinners and amusing guests. Here's Nicola on the cultural perception of Margaret as a dour religious fanatic. She was very dour, very serious, spent her whole life on her knees in prayer. And of course, part of that has been cultivated in popular culture as well. But yeah, I think, and I must admit, I had the same misconception of that too. I very much, and I think that's part of the reason why I wasn't initially, why I didn't come to her sooner, maybe, is she didn't kind of strike me as being the sexiest character. And even today, so right, so my recent nickname for her is, and people laugh when I say this, but my recent nickname for her is the Beauford Babe. Yeah, the Beauford Babe. (laughs) Yeah, right, because I'm trying to... I feel like now that I kind of know her, I'm trying to sort of highlight that there was this other side to her. And, you know, part of the reason that we have this misconception of her as being sort of dull and whatever is because of her portraits. And that is something that I do think partly that that is an image that was cultivated by Margaret herself and that she was partly responsible for that image of her as, you know, wanting to be seen as really religious. And there's no doubt that religion was a very important part of Margaret's life and her identity. But again, when you look at these account books and you see this other side to her and you see that this was a woman who she loved playing cards Um, She loved playing chess. She placed bets on the outcomes of games of chess. Um, She she had these two fools as well. So there is this kind of this this far less serious side to her. Um, You know, she once even sent a man from um, Buckton to deputise for her on a pilgrimage while she played cards. So, you know, so nothing not even god was going to draw her away from her game of cards on this occasion um so i think that yeah there is this more fun loving side to her she also she loved to spend money Uh, she was surrounded by all of the trappings that you would have expected for a woman of her status and she also really really loved nice clothes and and jewels um you know she liked perfume all of these things so There is a far richer picture of a woman who was very much a woman of her time in many ways, um, a a woman of her time, of her status, who who liked all of these things. So, so yeah, I think that that's something that has been overlooked and missed in many respects. On January 16th, 1486, Margaret noted in her Book of Hours that on this day, Harry VII wedded the Queen Elizabeth officially uniting the houses of Lancaster and York. But the elevation of Elizabeth of York to the Queen of England did not diminish Margaret's role in her son's court. She made sure of that. This is another aspect that is often emphasized by historians and novelists alike. But although we can never know Elizabeth of York's true feelings about her ever-present mother-in-law, there is very little evidence of a strained relationship between the two. By 1491, Queen Elizabeth has succeeded twice over by producing an heir and a spare for the Tudor dynasty. 
assuring its continuation into the next generation. Margaret took a keen interest in the lives of her grandchildren, and her close association with the court ensured that she was constantly in their presence. She had a direct role in perhaps one of English history's most contested marriages, that between Margaret's grandson, Prince Arthur, and the Infanta of Spain, Catherine of Aragon, in 1501. This marriage signaled an acknowledgement from the most powerful royal house in Europe of Henry VII's legitimacy as England's king. For Margaret, this was recognition she had worked tirelessly for since her son took the throne. Some in England and abroad still viewed Henry's role as that of a usurper, not a king. By the time of Arthur's marriage, the Tudor dynasty had weathered two rebellions that had come perilously close to unseating Henry VII. But only months after this great triumph came a shocking tragedy. Arthur and his new bride Catherine were both struck down with an illness. Catherine survived, but Arthur, the hope of the Tudor dynasty, died within a matter of days. Margaret's reaction is not recorded, perhaps a sign of her immense grief. Most of the major events in her life, she took extreme care to record, so it is possible that her grief was so overwhelming that she could not record this specific tragic event. Within weeks of Arthur's death, Queen Elizabeth was once again pregnant. They had been blessed with an heir and a spare, but now they only had their young son Henry to continue the Tudor line. It was imperative that another son was born to secure the Tudor dynasty. On February 7th, 1503, Queen Elizabeth gave birth to a premature daughter. The Queen's health rapidly deteriorated, and on February 11th, she died, followed soon after by her infant daughter. The Tudor court was plunged even further into mourning, but Margaret found herself once again the most powerful woman in the realm. While she had never ceded her influence over Henry, Queen Elizabeth had naturally taken precedent in all court proceedings. Now, Margaret was queen in all but name. Many of her contemporaries believed Margaret wielded as much power as any of the men in the king's privy chamber, if not more. However, it was clear at this point that Henry VII's health was deteriorating. In February 1509, Margaret received word that her son was near death, and she rushed to his side at Richmond Palace. It is difficult for any parent to face the reality of outliving their child, and it is hard to imagine the sheer agony Margaret was going through. Her entire life since the age of 13 had been dedicated to her son. Every decision, every action, every dangerous path was taken for the betterment of her son's future. Late in the day of April 21st, Henry VII died with his mother by his side. Margaret was now separated from her son permanently and was left devastated. The newly titled Henry VIII took the throne a few months shy of his 18th birthday. This meant that he required a regency, and Margaret readily took up the reins of power. While her later legacy has painted her as an overbearing, manipulative, fanatical woman, her times holding the reins of power are far more nuanced. Here's Nicola. I think she was very shaped by events and her her life was by no means by no means normal I think. 
and she was very she was just trying to do her best to for her family to do what she could to keep them safe and reacting to events as they played out and trying to work out how you know how she could best serve her family in those circumstances I think a lot of Margaret's behavior up until 1483 is driven by that kind of mindset and I think she must have lived life pretty much in a constant state of anxiety really um with no idea of what was going to I mean what was Henry's future going to be what was her future going to be so it must have been pretty unbearable at times I would imagine well, Deb points out, and you have to, going back to the ambition thing, you have to think she was the wealthiest woman in England. So she was kind of, we'll say, born ambitious. You know, she was ambitious to keep her place in society. She had a certain reputation to maintain. So to say that usually people are graspingly ambitious when they don't really have anything. She already had all that. So you could see how she would believe her son had a claim to the throne simply because of her station in life. So no one can help where they're born or how they're born. And if you look at her from that point of view, you see her in a different way. You see how she was benevolent but then again maybe she did try to advance her son's claims we'll never know her time as regent gained the utmost respect from her contemporaries she worked tirelessly to ensure the smooth transfer of power between her son and grandson and was rewarded with witnessing the jubilation in the streets of london for henry viii's coronation on june 24 1509 this would be the last major court event Margaret would witness. Five days after the coronation, Margaret died at the abbot's house in Westminster Abbey. Her close friend and confidant Bishop John Fisher, in her funeral sermon, stated that all England for her death had cause of weeping. Virgil praised Margaret as a woman most outstanding, both in her pious love of God and charity to all men and whose countless virtues each one of us may find it easier to admire than analyze. I am my lady the king's mother now, and you shall curtsy to me, as low as to a queen of royal blood. This was my destiny, to put my son on the throne of England, and those who laughed at my visions and doubted my vocation will call me my lady the king's mother, and I shall sign myself Margaret Regina, Margaret are. This quote by Philippa Gregory in her book The Red Queen emphasizes the legacy of Margaret as a woman convinced of her son's right to rule. As both Nicola and Deb have argued, it doesn't seem that Margaret believed that Henry was destined to be king from the moment of his birth. Instead, she was a woman responding to real life in the moment events that would come to shape her and her son's future. Margaret lived during a time of massive political upheaval in England, but she was also alive during an era defined by strong women desperate to protect their children. As Nicola discusses, 
I think the fact that she was a woman living in quite an extraordinary time to be a woman, um, because it's the 15th century and the beginning of the 16th century. They are, of course, hugely tumultuous in terms of the Wars of the Roses, but also the impact that this has on women and you know, it's quite an extraordinary time to be a woman because you have Margaret of Anjou, who is, because of the problems experienced by her husband and the nature of the Wars of the Roses, is very much drawn to the forefront of events. And that's hugely frowned upon by her contemporaries. And then you've got, you know, Elizabeth Woodville, who hugely unpopular choice of consort for Edward IV in many respects and also earned a reputation as being rapacious and, and greedy and and then you've got Anne Neville who nobody really knows a great deal about unfortunately um, and also that other king's mother which is Cecily Neville so um, I think it was really that it was looking at how Margaret sat in this dynamic and how she found her place and navigated her path through all of this uncertainty all of this upheaval um and and survived it all as well actually and well not just survived it but but came to thrive as a result of it which is I mean really she is pretty much the only woman that we can say ends up thriving as a result of this. And they all face their own challenges. Many of the powerful women in 15th century England, Margaret of Anjou, Elizabeth Woodville, Cecily Neville, and Margaret Beaufort, have had their share of negative portrayals. However, in recent years, with the success of Philippa Gregory's The Cousins' War series, Margaret Beaufort has become widely accepted as the villainess of the tale, a woman so convinced by her son's own right to the throne that she was willing to do unspeakable things to ensure his success. Here's Deb. It could be due to social media. Like you said, there always has to be a, a villain. And I think she is easy prey because her son was in line for the front throne, but she she was loyal to her king who at that time was Richard III and I just don't see her sneaking around into the tower or having someone else do it because she really had a lot to lose personally so I don't I can see how people would think that but when you look at it as a historian and remove the emotions and all the different factions and look at how they thought and what their cultural mores were, I, I just don't really see it. It's probably easier for people to say, oh, this mother did this because she wanted to put her son on the throne than to think that maybe men did it because they were trying to advance their own agenda. But you have to look at a woman who was extremely benevolent in her own lifetime. She helped found two colleges at Cambridge. Um, she was was not a religious zealot, as pop culture has us believe, but she was a very religious woman. So it tends to be people that 
are religious in that way really don't plot and scheme a lot because they have faith that things are going to happen. So I think a lot of it's due to pop culture and social media picking up on things. Even today, strong women are vilified. So we have to imagine 550 years ago how it was. So when you are female and you have a, a strong personality, you get blamed for a lot. Or people don't understand you or they don't want to understand you. And it's it's easy to say, well, they're a real bitch and 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 move on with things than trying to look at what motivated someone's actions. You know, it's just easy to use that one phrase and everybody's like, oh, okay then. And to move into Anne Boleyn, you know, she even had a saying for a while, let them grumble because whatever she was doing, people didn't understand and she really didn't care. So they, people have never understood strong women. The myths surrounding Margaret have ebbed and flowed throughout history. She has either been footnoted or cast in the role of an antagonist. This is a common occurrence for women in history, especially when they hold positions of power and choose to use that power for themselves. Nicola points out, I think to a degree, she still is forgotten in many respects. I think she is very much kind of overlooked and, or if not overlooked, then she's almost footnoted as, well, yeah, that's Henry VII's mother. And then that's it. Um, and I don't think she, her significance is really given enough, um, given enough credit, I think, because, you know, she was a hugely important woman in many ways. And I don't think that that is, um, that view is, yeah, sort of pushed forward enough. But, you know, she was a really important personality in her time. And I do think that she most definitely deserves to be remembered as more than just Henry VII's mother. Sometimes it's easier to repeat what's come before rather than go back and look at it all for yourself. Um, and I think that that's just, you know, there are myths and misconceptions that are being challenged and reviewed all the time, which is brilliant. And it's lovely to see so many people kind of delving back into the archives and, and looking at the original sources and stuff now, which is you know, something that I would encourage everyone to do. Um, uh, but I think that Margaret perhaps has been a bit neglected in that respect. So as I say, it's sometimes it's just easier to repeat what's come before. Rather than repeating the age-old stories of Margaret, both Deb and Nicola believe she deserves her own analysis one that looks at her actions in the larger picture of the era she lived in and the events that surrounded her. Here's Deb. I, I think the human interest story, like we discussed, she was married the first time at age seven, you know, how they used to marry people. But then she really was married and had a child at 12. That's pretty scary right there. Um, and it wrecked her physically where she could never have another child. She went on to be married to different people, basically to control what she did own. Even, even though she maintained control of it, they had to have a husband, you know, but because that's the way their culture was set up. 
she was very benevolent. She was a religious person. And I would like for people to think of the good things she did and that she was a strong woman who really made an impact in what was very much a man's world. And Nicola believes. I think I'd just really like to see her remembered as someone who did end up doing quite well out of life, um, but who was able to use her privilege and her wealth to help benefit the lives of others. And, you know, I mentioned that we see that in her um, educational foundations today, but, you know, also she was founding almshouses, she was paying people's debts. She, everybody who worked for her loved her really. And, uh, you know, she cared very much for her grandchildren. She was very family orientated. So, I'm not trying to say that she was by any means perfect. You know, she was human with the same flaws and imperfections that we all have. But I'm just trying to say that she she did do a lot of good. She would have, I've got no doubt, she would have annoyed people from time to time. But she, <laughs> um, no doubt at all. But, you know, she was also paying for the education of the children who sang in her chapel all these things so it's almost in some ways like she had more money than she knew what to do with but the fact that she was doing things to help improve the lives of others I think is a is a great testament to her character and kind of went above and beyond the norms and expectations of the day as well you know I'd just like to see her remembered with a bit more balance Today, we have the privilege of looking at historical events already knowing the outcome. This was not the case for the people alive during that time. When her son was born, Margaret could have never envisioned the life she would come to lead. And every event that later went in Margaret's favor could have just as easily turned out differently. Margaret was a woman who was forced by circumstance to take her life and destiny into her own hands and negotiate one of the most tumultuous times in English history. In the end, she not only survived, but came to thrive. <laughs> <laughs>